there, this is Jen Wade, part of the core team here at Springs Church. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us and listening to our podcast. We are praying that it encourages you and it inspires you. And if you'd like to find out more about Springs Church, please visit our website, springschurch.co.uk. Here's today's message. It is wonderful to be with you this afternoon. Hello. We may take our seats if we haven't done so already. My name is Ben. It is wonderful to be with you this afternoon. Get things sorted on this end. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of funny this afternoon that um, we've just had the experience of Sam, the one-man band, and Danny. Should we give them both a round of applause? Sam was simultaneously doing four things at once during those songs. There we go. Um, and then halfway through, the, the desk that we use on the iPad decided to lock me out. So it's kind of funny this afternoon that I've, I think the Lord's asked me to speak on worship. Um, and so um, if you don't know me, my name is Ben. I am one of the leaders here at Springs. Um, God called Jen and I to, to lead alongside Peter and Rachel when we were about 15 or 16 um, and felt like Peter and Rachel would just be our youth pastors, the people that looked after us as youth forever and ever. We never realized that God had this in store for us. Um, but since then, God has brought us on such a wonderful journey. Um, and so I want to talk to you this afternoon about this idea of, uh, of worship. Is it just a thing that we do? Does it fill 20 minutes of a, of a church service? Does it sometimes fill a bit more? Is it something we have on in the car? I wonder what happens in your head when I say the word worship. I wonder what the image is that pops into your head. Maybe it's an image of Sam. Uh, and his guitar. Maybe you hear a band or you hear some words you've heard before. Um, maybe if you were brought up in a Methodist circuit like I was as a kid, uh, briefly, you'll, you'll hear the sounds of an organ, you'll hear the sounds of a piano. Um, maybe you, you get a picture of Jesus or some stained glass windows. We have even a few in here. I don't really know what the symbolance of the, the, what they mean, but they look very nice. And um, maybe you get the idea of a hymn. Uh, I know when I first thought about this, I had the, uh, give me joy in my heart, keep me praising. That was the first thing that came into my head. Maybe that's uh, been suppressed from my childhood for many years. Maybe the word worship carries something a bit different for you. Uh, maybe it's that bit of the service that you have to get through. Maybe, maybe you aren't that confident in singing particularly loudly, you don't like it. Maybe it's a bit where you mumble quietly and you wait for it all to be over. And sometimes you enjoy it and sometimes you don't. Um, maybe other people putting their hands up or clapping or maybe the idea of that just makes you squirm, leaves you feeling uncomfortable. My point is that we all have different experiences and feelings and thoughts when it comes to this word, worship. My own personal starting point, like I said, uh, for, the, for the word worship, has changed a lot over many years. Um, I, my mum and dad uh, used to go to Westbury Chapel, so I was christened at Westbury Chapel in Wolverhampton, um, and it was very much an organ piano um, church, uh, or I think we, we eventually went on to CD, I think there were some CDs going on at the time. Um, and then when we, my mum and dad moved to Calvary Church in Kings Whitford, it's now a Rise Church, absolutely incredible, wonderful church, and I'm so glad that mum and dad moved there, but it did change the idea in my head of what I had for, for worship. I would, I would guess that I'm actually probably in the small minority here when I say that I've probably been in the worship band more times than I've sat in the congregation for worship. I started playing in church bands when I was about 13, 
and I've played pretty much every Sunday since or done something related to the band and worship. You see, I love congregational worship. I love leading people in raising their voice to God and, and singing songs together. I think there's something wonderful in that and I'll never tire of that moment where the Holy Spirit just hits a room and we all have to stop and pause, just like we did then, just at the end of our worship time. Sure, playing the songs can be fun. I'll also let you in on a secret. It can be pretty boring as well. don't know if you know, pretty much all these songs are exactly the same thing all the way through. So as a musician, they are not particularly musically challenging, but it's actually much, much deeper than that. Um, I've been in worship teams now for 17 years, from small rooms of five people to, to regional, national conferences. So what have I learned during that time? I've learned that our definition of worship is too small. Our definition of worship is far, far too small. We often throw this word around in church and we don't really fully explain what it is. You might hear people say, oh, let's enter into worship, let's come into worship, let's raise our hands in worship. And the reality is that maybe we actually mean that we sing nice songs together without really understanding there is a much, much deeper meaning behind what we're doing here. This afternoon, I hope to unpack a little bit of what Jesus calls true worship. Maybe how we can access him in fresh and exciting ways where he can be with us through the darkest, darkest and deepest of valleys and also with us in the highest and clearest of mountaintops. So we're going to look in the book of John, chapter 4, verse 23. It's going to come up on the screen. Let's see what Jesus says when he talks about true worship. Jesus said these words in the book of John. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. I don't know about you, but when it says there, the true worshippers, that's the kind of worshipper that I long to be. It's the kind of worshipper that I think God would want us to be. And I'm sure that all of us deep down would say, yeah, I would like my worship to be true. I'd like to be one of those things. I'd like to be a true a true worshipper. But I think really to understand this, we might need to broaden our horizons a little bit. We might need to look a bit deeper into the Bible and maybe even our own definitions of words and try and work out what this word worship really means. So what I did was naturally turn to the first bit of the Bible and I tried to find where in the Bible is the word worship first used. And I did not come across the word worship. Let's look in Genesis 4. Verses 2 to 5. So this is four chapters into the Bible story. In the biblical story, we have the creation story, the story of Adam and Eve. And we're now touching on the story of Cain and Abel, who were the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked in the soil. So Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. He took some of the things he'd grown and gave it to God. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. But Ben, you've just said it doesn't say worship there. No, it doesn't. The word that it actually says is offering. 
The Hebrew word here, the Old Testament was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and translated many years ago. The Hebrew word for offering here is minha. And it actually doesn't just happen here in the Old Testament. It happens 54 times throughout the whole of the Old Testament. And this word doesn't just mean um, offering. It's, it's, it's closer to present or gift. A couple of years ago for, um, for Christmas, Caleb became obsessed with um, a toy lobster. So in August, we went on a holiday, walking along the beachfront. And do you know those lobsters where you pull the bottom and the claws snap together like this? It was about four quid. Caleb became obsessed with it to the point where he was, he was adamant that that would be coming for Christmas. He needed that as his gift. He needed that as his present. Of course, we'd forgotten about this until Christmas Eve. Luckily, Jen had purchased said lobster behind his back in August when we, weren't, when we, he, we took him away. Uh, but we'd given it to Jen's brother. Caleb, on Christmas Eve, suddenly announces, oh, I'm really looking forward to having that in the morning. And we think, you're not having it in the morning, mate. It's not even in our house. So at half past ten on Christmas Eve, I'm ringing Jen's brother. We need to swap presents, mate. We're going to bring you around this 40-pound set of Lego figures that we've bought for Caleb. You're going to give him that. We need the £6.50 lobster. So ten, half past ten, I buzzed around to, to Paul, Jen's brother's, swap the gifts over. Christmas morning, all Caleb wanted to know was where was his toy lobster? Absolutely obsessed with where is the toy lobster? Two years on, it is still one of his favourite presence. <laughs> the monetary value didn't, didn't matter to Caleb. It, had, it didn't matter whether we'd spent £100 or £6. He became obsessed with this idea of this toy lobster. And I would suggest in the Bible, when we look at the word minha, when we look at the word offering, maybe that's how God feels about the praise and worship that we get to give him as well. He's desperate for it, bursting at the seams, wanting your worship because you mean so much to him. When we look at this story of Cain and Abel, we can actually work out a couple of things about worship. What we're doing is actually bringing a gift to God, a present. And so I reckon we can infer three things from this story that might help us broaden our definition of worship. First of all, worship involves the human and the divine. Cain and Abel brought something to God. Worship bridges the gap between humans and God. I reckon the second thing that we can work out from this story is that worship involves the humans giving something back to God. We saw that uh, Cain was a farmer and he gave from his his soil, from the things he'd grown, and that Abel was, um, was a shepherd and gave one of his sheep. He gave something to God. And this is really interesting. This jumped out to me in this story particularly. I think worship can be accepted or rejected. Plenty of things can look like or claim to be worship, but our worship is either accepted or rejected upon the condition of our hearts. Let's explain that a little bit more because that may seem a little bit harsh. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 4 that Abel gave by faith. We know in that verse it says, that um, Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of his firstborn of his flock. Let's think about that for a moment. Why would he give those, and why did Cain just give something? The Bible isn't specific about what Cain actually gave. It just says he gave an offering from the soil. Presumably, it wasn't his very best things. But if you think about Abel, as a shepherd, 
the success of his business is based upon being able to have more sheep. This was his firstborn lamb and therefore would have been one of the first lambs in his flock to reach maturity. His, his health and success as a businessman, as a shepherd, he needed to produce a new flock as quickly as he could. He needed to keep the life cycle going round. This, this lamb would have been vital to his family, vital to his business. To put it another way, Abel did not value his work above God. Abel did not value his flock above God himself. He put his earthly thinking to one side in order to give God his best gift. Cain gave a generic gift, nothing particularly special, whereas Abel gave the most significant gift that he had in his hand at that time. If we delve a bit further into the Bible, the biblical authors that wrote the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, um, they did not use worship as a generic term. They used a lot of specific verbs in specific moments that, were, that meant a lot more than just a broad term, worship. So in the Old Testament, they would use words such as aboda, abad, and asab, where instead of what we would write down as worship. The better translation of these words is actually probably acts of service or giving something to God. And it was really common in the Old Testament, if you read through those books, you'll see that there were a whole range of acts of worship in the Old Testament. People built altars in specific places when God had done something amazing as a way of remembering God's faithfulness. People gave from their grain stores. They gave from their flocks of animals. People gave money to God and the temple. And all of these things in the Old Testament would have been seen as acts of worship. One of the most famous worshippers in the Old Testament was a man called King David. And we'll talk about him a little bit more later on. If we skip over to the New Testament in the time of Jesus, the Greek word, because the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, uh, the Greek word that's often used here for worship is not worship, but lataira, which means often a gift of money, a service given for free. It often is actually used as a direct word for servant. In other words, when we worship, we become a servant of God. How many people, when I said the word worship at the beginning, had an image of a servant in their head? Because certainly not me, when I began digging into all of this. Maybe when we look at our worship leaders, before I knock the Mac over, maybe when we look at our worship leaders, maybe we need to redefine them as servant leaders. When we worship, we become worshippers, but by definition, we also become servants, servants of God. Servants not to an overbearing, uh, an unkind master, but we become servants to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The Bible would use the word Jehovah Jireh, the provider, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. We become a servant to King Jesus himself when we worship. There's a really interesting word used in the New Testament particularly called proskino. This actually means to kiss forward, not to worship, but to kiss forward. It's the closest thing we have to, to blowing a kiss. What a wonderful image that when we worship Father God, what we're actually doing is, is a very childlike, baby-like blowing of a kiss to God. There's also used the word shahak, which means to acknowledge God's sovereignty above all. They used really specific words where we might just use one. Then there's uh, another word used in the, in the New Testament is gono, which literally means to bend the knee 
and to bow down. And all of these things start to build up a broader definition of what we mean by this word, worship. We're starting to see that if we limit the, the, the name of the word worship to 20 minutes at the start of our service together, what we're actually doing is a great disservice to ourselves and to God. Um, it's, it's more than just servanthood. If we look at the actual word itself, if we look at the actual word itself, worship, where do we get that word from? Well, it's actually an old English word, one, worth-ship. Do you know that we have the word hardship, which means full of hard times? Well, worth-ship in the old English would mean full of worth. Worthy, full of worthiness. Maybe worth-ship is actually a better word for us than worship. Something that is worthy of our time, given to the worthiest of all beings, God himself. So now we've got a bit of a richer definition of worship. Let's look at someone really important in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And uh, this is what he had to say about worship in Romans 12, verse 11. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we're starting to see again that the word true worship comes up in the New Testament, this time written by the Apostle Paul. I love this verse because it actually takes the idea of worship being a servanthood, it takes it a little bit further, and it actually calls out worship as a sacrifice, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So that's where, in church, you might hear phrases such as, let's give a sacrifice of praise. You might hear those sorts of things said from the front of church. And that's what we're actually talking about. Worship is servanthood, but it's also sacrifice. In the Old Testament, we often read that people had to make physical sacrifices to God to try and make way for their sins and connect with God again. We would see things like lambs and sheep and And those sorts of things being sacrificed. And thankfully, Jesus' death on the cross put an end to all of that. And it means we're now free to connect with God whenever we want through the sacrifice of Jesus. So maybe now our image of worship is actually a bit more around servanthood and worthiness and, and sacrifice. More than it is singing, maybe. Well, that's all well and good, Ben, but... Does that actually change anything in my life? You're talking about worship. You're talking about those 20 minutes in church. It's not going to change my day-to-day life. Is it going to change my thought processes? Is it going to change my approach to life? Well, actually, if we read the Bible, I think it should. Colossians 3, verses 23 to 24 says this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, do it for the Lord. It is him that we're serving. So maybe if true worship is actually about serving and it's actually about sacrifice, is it too much of a stretch to say that anything that we do in the name of the Lord is actually an act of worship? Serving teas and coffees before church like Rob and Mel were doing today. That's an act of worship. They are serving and being servants to other people, sacrificing.
notes in their time and their tea and coffee making skills to serve the Lord. When you carve out time in your day to read your Bible for two minutes, that is an act of worship. You are sacrificing something else that you could be doing and serving the Lord. When you read a Bible story to your child before bedtime, that's an act of worship. When you go to work, not working for human masters, do it as if you were working for the Lord. Your everyday nine to five working hours, whatever it looks like for you, it's an act of worship. Worship is not restricted to the 20 minutes at the start of a service. It's not restricted to when you've put something on Spotify. It's not restricted to when you watch a YouTube video of a, of a worship concert. Everything that we do when done in the name of the Lord with a correct heart is an act of worship. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, for it is the Lord you are serving. Whatever you do, do, with it, do it with all of your heart, for it is the Lord you are serving. Wow, that seems a bit broader now, Ben. But hold on a minute. If you've unpacked this definition now, and if worship really means sacrifice, and worship means servanthood, why do we need to sing? Why do we do it every single week? What's the point? If true worship is about sacrifice and about servanthood and about coming under Jesus' authority, then do we need the Christian karaoke bit? Does that, is that an important part? Yes. <laughs> it is absolutely vital. Across the world, millions and millions of Christians sing songs to God. And this has always been an expression of worship that is so so, so important. From the 14th century, there were Gregorian chants sung in Latin. If you're a bit of a music nerd like me, you'll know that the musical system created for this in the 14th century has never been repeated again. Um, the musical system used in Gregorian chants is something called modes, which we still use today in jazz and blues music. So all the way back then, Christians were innovating brand new ways to lift worship to God. Hymns written by Charles Wesley in the 18th century to contemporary worship songs today. The church has always found its voice in the corporate singing of praises to God, whether they can actually sing or not. <laughs> this tradition ultimately comes back to King David, that man I mentioned in the Old Testament. David either penned or one of his contemporaries or friends or people around him penned the entire book right in the middle of the Bible called Psalms. Now, this book was not actually originally designed to be written down. The Psalms, in their first instance, were sung. They were songs. In fact, many of them are still sung by Jewish people today in Hebrew. The Psalms are David's original worship songs that has inspired every single worship song since. This is where we may look at a different word from worship and look at the word praise Praise being the celebration of everything that God has done. And worship being the heart connection, a, a wider, deeper connection to him. So maybe some people would put it as black and white as, oh, when you do the fast songs, they're the praise songs, they're the celebration songs. And when you do the slow songs, they're the worship songs. I don't believe it's quite as black and white as that. But um, praise being the celebration of what God has done. And worship being that deeper heart connection to him. When reading the Psalms, we can see that David was communicating with God in praise and worship. And de declaring God's goodness despite these circumstances. 
I'm just going to read the start of Psalm 118. It won't come up on the screen. I only just added it in. It says this, Psalm 118. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Maybe you've heard that in a song before. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the houses of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. Do you know when we're doing a song and we sing, sing the same bits over and over again a few times, we do it a bit quiet and then we build up a little bit and then we do it a bit loud. This is exactly what they're doing in the Psalms. He's repeating the same things over and over again. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. Verse 6. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me, he is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. So David himself wrote worship songs that were designed to be sung. You can actually see here that Jesus himself sung songs to God as well. We're going to jump to Matthew 26. And this is the Last Supper, not the painting, the bit in the Bible where um, Jesus is having his final meal with his friends, with his disciples. This is uh, kind of some of the verses that we tie into communion as well, but I'm interested in verse 30. Let's read from verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Did you know Jesus sang hymns just like we do? In fact, this Last Supper was tying into a Jewish festival, a Jewish festival called Passover. Jews still celebrate this festival today, uh, and it's about being freed from slavery in Egypt. It's actually called the Exodus story, because it's in the book of Exodus in the Bible. And it's, it's the Old Testament mirror of the story of Jesus. I'd encourage you to read the two side by side and see how much they marry up. I haven't got time to go into that this afternoon, but I'd encourage you to search it out for yourself. Because we know that this was the last meal of Passover, we can look at Jewish tradition and infer that Jesus actually sang Psalm 118 with his disciples. This is the psalm that Jews still sing in the last meal of Passover. So those words I just read to you, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say. Those were the very same words that Jesus sang at his last supper. He sang it as a hymn. So if Jesus sang to God, well, then we know that we should as well. It's mentioned time and time again in the Bible. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, building you up, building one another up in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5, verse 18 to 19. Now, when I was a kid and it said, do not get drunk on wine, I thought, beer and spirits, that's all right. It's not what it means. It says here, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Does that mean when someone walks into church, you jump in their face and sing a psalm at them and make up your own tune? It does not. <laughs> we don't need to be Christian weirdos. What we do need to do is raise a song to the Lord altogether. 
Psalm 5 verse 11 says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 9 verse 2, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 59 verse 16, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you, have been, uh, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Psalm 63 verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. And here's a clincher from James. This is Jesus' brother. James 5 verse 13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. <laughs> so, Singing praises to God together corporately means that we actually come together around the same words. In unity, singing to the same God to make God famous in our hearts all over again. I love coming to church on a Sunday and singing all together because it helps me to get rid of the muck of my week and it helps me to, to make God famous in my heart again. It helps me to recenter my heart and understand, hey, I'm not the only one singing these things. Look at all these people singing together. It helps us, as Colossians 3 says, the first one I read, let the word dwell richly in our hearts. But hold on a minute. Does God really care about the style of our worship? Would it please him more or less if we dusted off the organ and had a go on that? I imagine the amount of dust that would come out of the pipes might be an issue. Would it... Would it Please him more if we got rid of the drums like we did today. Was that better or not better? No. Our new broad definition of worship, servanthood, worthiness, sacrifice, singing, that is very much clear that it's about the heart and not the vehicle. I've said it over many years. I've never had to say it in this church, but I've heard people say things like, oh, I didn't really get much from the worship today. My answer will always be to that, good, we weren't doing it for you, we were doing it for him. Worship is one of the only things in our lives that is explicitly not about us. I mean, even in preaching and listening to a message right now, we're trying to glean things that will help us in our walk with God. That's a great thing to do. You should absolutely do that. But it's still a little bit about us. Worship is explicitly not about us. It is a selfless act. At church, we have this slot every single week so that we can forget about ourselves and focus on him who gave it all for us. In a similar way, in my book, and apologies if I'm being harsh here, but comments I've never heard in this church, things like, I didn't like the songs today, or oh, I thought the, the drums were a bit loud, I didn't like it when that person sang. It doesn't really wash with me. It's like a toddler refusing to eat their dinner because it's not cut up in the right shapes. We have the opportunity to worship Father God, to worship Jesus who gave everything for us. And we're going to let something as petty as our own preferences get in the way. Oh, I didn't raise my hands as much today because it didn't, it didn't feel quite right. Oh, I, 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 how dare I stand in my pockets mumbling when the Lord God put himself on a cross for me. We're worshipping the God who gave his life up for us. And sometimes I can't even be bothered to raise my hands. Yes, 
Sometimes I don't actually want to raise my hands. <laughs> but the definition of worship says it's about servanthood. It's about sacrifice. And so it's not about me. So sometimes I don't, I don't particularly want to clap. I want to sit down and I want to be moody because I've had a rubbish week and I don't need it. <laughs> but it's not about me. Sometimes the worship leader says something like, come on, everyone, let's raise our hands. And inside you go, really? Oh, mm. I'll let you in on a secret. Sometimes I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I do it because I'm coming under the authority of an appointed servant leader who's actually been deeper in worship than I have because they're leading me and I'm following. So if a worship leader says, put your hands up, I'm going to put my hands up. <laughs> Whether I actually want to or not, if you're physically unable to lift, lift your arms, maybe due to health reasons, the practicalities of having children running around. I don't know if you saw Evie sucking the life out of a felt tip while Jen was, uh, Jen was speaking earlier. Obviously, there's practical things that sometimes get in the way. And if we go back to the story of Cain and Abel, what we do know is that worship is acceptable based on the condition of our heart. Putting your hands up and jumping and shouting and clapping, it's not the be-all and end-all. But what we do do when we, when we do those things is we step into the sacrifice. We step into the servanthood element of worship. Here at Springs, we are really careful about the songs that, that we choose to sing from the front. We've actually, Pete, Sam and I have nearly come to blows about a few things to do with songs. Um, we were very adamant in the early days of Springs. We were meeting in a pub with the pigeon fanciers in the room next door. What we didn't want to do was we immediately chopped out anything that could be classified as Jesus is my boyfriend songs. So I know growing up, there was this amazing song written uh, by Tim Hughes, who runs Gastric, actually. Beautiful one, I love. Beautiful one, I adore. Sam was probably there at this moment. I remember a lad turning to his girlfriend at the front of church and singing it directly to her. What we wanted to try and step away from was any songs that could interpret it that way. We're really careful, and we actually choose quite a few hymn-type songs here at Springs. If you think about Yet not I, uh, live in hope, Christ crucified, look where I'm standing now. Because the theology that we sing has to be the same as the theology that we speak. So if someone comes into church for the first time, they are not going to remember the words that were spoken here. What they will go home is, is humming a tune or singing a little bit of a song in the week Hopefully, some of the words that were spoken from the front come back to them and, and help them in the week. But in reality, it's going to be the words that they sung. So the only thing that we want to sing here at church is things that point people to Jesus. We pick those hymn-type songs because each verse unpicks a bit of what happens in Jesus' story. Normally, if you look at the pattern of them, they talk about Jesus coming, they talk about Jesus' life, they talk about Jesus' death, and they talk about him coming back again in the future, all tied around a chorus that we sing a few times. That, we do that on purpose. <laughs> we don't pick these songs by accident each week. The words that we sing is just important. The, the theology of what we sing is just as important as the theology of what is spoken from the front. We've actually changed a few lyrics to songs from the originals. If you listen to some of the originals and the words that we sing, we sing slightly different things. 
because what we sing is vitally important. To give you an example, nothing major, there was a verse um, in a song that said, Jesus robbed the grave. And we just very simply had a chat and said, I don't think Jesus robbed anything. I don't think he stole. What Jesus did was conquer. And so what we did was we changed it to the word conquer because we felt like that actually fit what we believe a little bit more. We're not changing the whole song. We just wouldn't do it if we didn't believe it was true. So let's come back to this broader definition of worship. We've talked about servanthood and sacrifice and singing as well. Let's go back to that verse where Jesus talked about true worship. John 4, 23. We read this right at the start. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipper the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now when Jesus said these words, he was actually in the middle of a conversation with a Samaritan woman. I haven't got time to go into how countercultural this conversation is, but you need to go to the book of John chapter 4 and read it for yourself. Um, This question came up because the woman was trying to distract from what Jesus was actually talking about. Um, And she asked him, should they worship on a mountain like they did in the Old Testament? Or should they only worship in Jerusalem? Because at the time, there was this big temple there in Jerusalem. And as part of Jesus' answer, he said these words, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean, in spirit and in truth? If we, if we can answer that, then maybe we can become true worshippers. You'll notice in that verse, when you read it in your Bible, it, it, and on there actually, that there's a capital letter for spirit. Well, that really quickly indicates that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the spirit that can be with us that God sent so many years ago. Worshipping with the Holy Spirit in our hearts, Serving him, working for him, singing to him, all connected by the Holy Spirit who lives within our hearts. Worshipping whilst being connected to our spiritual side and our emotional side. And and singing in truth, well singing in truth means things we know to be true from the Bible. I can categorically tell you that if there were songs that were not directly linked to the Bible, we would not sing them here. Worshipping just to be saying true things, just by speaking truth, well, that sounds a bit dry. Yes, I want the truth, but I also want the spirit. I want to be connected spiritually and emotionally to Father God. So when I put my hands up in worship, it's a personal thing for me to say, Lord, I want to be closer to you. Lord, I really believe what I'm singing right now. Lord, I, I, I I want to try and, as the Bible says, touch the hem of your robe. Lord, I want to be a bit closer to you. And yeah, we, heaven may not be in the sky, but that is a symbol of, uh, of what I want to do in that moment. I want to worship in spirit, and I want the words I sing to be truth. When I'm working, I want to work in the spirit, but I also want to work in the truth that I believe. So if I'm doing anything, I'm going to do it for the Lord. But maybe this afternoon, as I bring this into land, you're asking, but why? Why should I worship? Really? Why is he worthy? Why should I go to work and do it for Jesus? Why should I serve him? Why should I, why should I sing to him? In order to illustrate that point, I'd like to turn in the Bible to probably the most inspiring and distressing act of worship that I can find. 
the single most impressive act of worship ever committed. Luke 22, verse 42, reading from the NLT version. Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. Why, why are those two sentences such an impressive, an impressive act of worship? It's because these were the words of Jesus in the last time he prayed to his father before he was crucified. Jesus fully knew that he was about to be arrested. He fully knew the pain and the trauma that he was going to experience physically. But he also fully knew that he was going to have to be spiritually disconnected from his father for a time. While the sins of the world, all the bad stuff that disconnects us from God, were put on him. Jesus fully knew that. And he still said, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In that moment, Jesus was the ultimate servant. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And that means that we can sing praises to him. The Bible says that God actually couldn't stand to look at his son in the moment that he died on that cross because he looked like everything in the world that gets between us and God. And then he died. He died for you and he died for me. He died for us so that we could connect with Father God again. The Bible actually talks about the curtain in the temple being torn in two. The curtain where the presence of God used to be pushed away for only certain people to go in. And the curtain tore in two so that everybody can experience the presence of God. The freedom of faith that we now experience today was bought at the highest cost. It cost Jesus his life. But as Sam comes up to play, the important thing here is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He came back to life to show us that he had conquered the grave and he had defeated death. He had removed the sting from its tail and he showed us that we can have eternal life as well if we want to. Why is Jesus worthy? Because he gave up everything so that we could connect with him again. So this afternoon, it would be remiss of me if I didn't give you an opportunity to know this person called Jesus. Maybe you've been sat here this whole time thinking, oh, I don't really know. I, 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 I wouldn't say that I'm a Christian. I don't think I know this person, Jesus. But maybe, maybe this afternoon, you want to take that step. You may be a person whose heart is beating really quickly right now. That's just a symbol for me that God is speaking to me. If my heart beats quickly, I know that I need to listen. Um, and so let's just take a moment to pray. I'm going to pray, first of all, for anyone who wants to make a first-time commitment to God, to Jesus, to say, yes, I, I, I want to be a Christian. You might have a hundred million questions. Don't worry, I still do. Then I'm going to say a prayer for the rest of us to recommit to a life of worship. And then it seems quite fitting that we should probably end with some singing. Let's pray. If that's you, if you're the person who's thinking, yeah, I need to say this prayer, I need to connect with God for the first time, I want to become a follower of Jesus, then just say this prayer in your heart after me. Dear Lord, I'm sorry for the things that I've done that have got in the way of, of me and you, whether I did them knowingly or not. Lord, I'm sorry for those things. Lord, please come and help me. Come and be with me. 
Lord, I want to take this step today. I want, to, I want to know you. I want to become a Christian. The Bible would say, I want to be born again. Lord, I, I thank you that because I take this step and because I ask, you can come and help me. You can come and be with me. In your name. Amen. I'm just going to ask if everyone keeps their head bowed for a moment. If you were someone who prayed that prayer for the very first time this afternoon, I would love you to do a really brave thing and just look up and make eye contact with me. We don't want to embarrass you. We just want to put a a Bible in your hand and maybe answer some questions that you might have. So if that's you, why don't you just look up and make eye contact this afternoon. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that we get the privilege to worship you. Lord, we get the privilege to worship you. Yes, it may be about sacrifice and servanthood and singing, but ultimately, Lord, we can choose to enter into worship or we can choose not to. Lord, I pray you would help us to enter into worship in our daily lives. That doesn't mean we go around singing songs, but Lord, may we dedicate every act that we do in our lives as an act of worship. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to to speak to our family, to speak to our kids and how to worship and why we worship and what an awesome God that we serve. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more of our messages, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel for past preachers. If you feel like you got something out of today's message, why not share it with your friends and spread the good news of Jesus? We are praying for you. We love you. So please, if you need anything at all, check out springschurch.co.uk. God bless.